But our text today is uh, from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 28. If you could turn there now, please. We're going to be talking about something very simple and uh, possibly something quite obvious. And I'm sure you'll be disappointed to know it's not going to be a long sermon today. But that doesn't mean that it's not something important that we're going to talk about. Because the truth is that it's something that has affected every single one of us during our lives. And it will certainly do so again. So, here's what Paul has written. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who is in need. May the Lord bless these words to us. Now, to me, it seems a little bit surprising to find this instruction here right at the beginning of the section, where Paul has changed his course in this letter from explaining what Christians have become in Christ to what they should do in Christ. And I can understand him starting with anger, because it's right up there with those really big and common sins, isn't it? But why jump from there to stealing? I mean, Christians don't steal, do they? I don't hear any denial. Surely something like envy or lust is more obvious. Yet, here it is. And so we must confront the question of why that is so. You know, when we arrived in New Zealand for the very first time, it was after a number of long flights and seemingly longer waits in airport terminals. And so our brains had turned entirely to custard by by the time it came to get on board a bus from Wellington to Whanganui. And as a result of that custard-like state, we left a bag, well, I left a bag, on the train station platform. Trouble was, it wasn't just any bag. It was the bag, the one with all of our certificates in, the one with our computer hard drive, and the title deeds to our house in Zimbabwe, and all the negatives for our best photos, and so on. It was a big problem. And we tried all kinds of things to get it back. But nothing worked. Couldn't find it. And then out of the blue, six months later, we get this phone call. It turns out that the driver of one of the ferry buses had spotted this bag on the platform and very kindly picked it up and taken it back to the ferry lost and found, where of course we had not thought to look for it. When it finally came back to Whanganui and we had it in our hands, to our amazement and relief, everything was still in the bag. And I say amazement and relief because in Zimbabwe, (laughs) I don't think it would have lasted 10 seconds. We would never have seen it again. So that is definitely 10 points for New Zealand. And there's another 10 points for the fact that I still often see honesty boxes around the place. You know, you go out in some of the rural roads and there's somebody trying to sell avos or something off the side of the road and you just put your money in. That's amazing. That's another 10 points. And there's 20 points for the fact that I no longer have to live behind a concrete wall with razor wire and electric fence on top. So, With all these bonus points, it's clear that theft isn't a problem in New Zealand, is it? No. 
The fact is, about, despite all these very good and positive things I've just mentioned, theft in New Zealand is an epidemic. I had a look on the internet, and I found an art- article from uh, New Zealand Retail Magazine. And it says that shoplifting, just shoplifting, costs New Zealand retailers $760 million a year. Let's just play around with those numbers a little bit so we can get a better sense of what we're talking about. Let's just say that uh, the average cost of something that's stolen is $10. I mean, nobody's going to slip a 50-inch flat screen into their pocket and disappear with it, are they? $10. So that works out to 208,000 incidents of theft a day. 208,000 things stolen from shops every day in New Zealand. That's a flood. And I think that's why Paul has put theft near the top of the list. Because it's just so common. And while it's true that Christians probably don't plan and execute multi-million dollar bank robberies, or at least I hope they don't, I bet there's a lot of other stuff going on in that line. And I'm definitely sure that there's a whole lot of temptation being faced every day by Christians. The thing is that theft isn't just going into store and pinching a lighter or maybe going as far as to climb through the neighbour's window and take ten bucks off their counter. It's also stuff like not declaring cash income to the IRD or maybe more subtle things like not giving credit to others for their ideas when somebody starts to praise you for them. The act and the temptation are very thoroughly, and certainly in the case of the latter, very permanently part of our lives. So we can be sure that dealing with them in a godly way is a worthwhile and important part of the way we work with God in the journey of sanctification. So, what can I tell you about theft? Not much actually, just this. Stop it! Stop it! That's it. Just don't do it. If you're doing it now, stop. If you're tempted in the future, don't. It's wrong. That's it, really. Nothing complicated at all. That's all that Paul says. There's no clever Greek. There's no amazing illustrations. Just stop. Okay, now that we've all stopped, (laughs) let's have a look at a a few of the reasons why we might have gotten started in the first place. And of course a moment's thought will show that potentially there's a very long list of these and I'm sure as we go along you're going to be saying to yourself, what about this or that? But I'm really not that interested in trying just to tick off a lot of boxes here. What I really want to do is go beyond mere names to a much more basic and, I think, important level of understanding to see what just a few examples will say about a person's view of God and why that might be wrong. Because once we have that understanding of God, then we have the real motivation for why we should not steal. Let's kick off by talking about laziness. The chief reason that I steal is because I just can't be bothered to make gain through hard work. It's so much easier to take advantage of the hard work that others have done. 
How about some good old-fashioned greed? I can never have enough. There's always something else shiny to catch my attention. So I take other people's stuff to make sure that I never go short. And then there's that other green-eyed friend named Envy. I like what you have a lot. In fact, I can't bear to see you have it any longer. So I'm going to take it away from you. So these are just a few examples of reasons for stealing. But I think there's some very obvious common threads. What's the first one? I'll give you a clue. It only has one letter. I. Exactly. I. I. I put all these things first and center. Me. I. The universe is all about me. I do not look horizontally to see the needs of those around me and the effects I have on them. I do not look up to consider what God may require or what he might think about what I'm doing. And I especially do not look down to be confronted by the consequences of my actions. The second thing is that there is nothing spiritual about any of these motivations. They are completely fleshly. And it's therefore unsurprising that we would find them in a list of such things in Galatians 5. So here we have two obvious symptoms of an illness, an overwhelming sense of self-importance coupled to uncontrolled fleshly desires. And so with these in hand, it shouldn't be too difficult to give give the disease a name and to make some recommendations for a cure. So let's go on now to name some names and prescribe some pills. Now the most obvious illness we might find in a persistent thief is that it's highly unlikely that they are genuinely saved. And I guess you could say that's pretty obvious because they are a thief. But that's not really enough because Christians can and they do steal. So I think that we should be looking a little bit deeper. And there are a few things we could choose as symptoms, but the one I want to look at now is related to that sense of self-importance problem. It needs a little illustration to explain the term that I'm going to use. I am not completely crazy about flying, like some people I can name in this church. But I do enjoy reading about it, especially those military thriller sort of books that talk about aerial combat. And there's a very interesting concept that they talk about a lot in tense moments that has a practical value in daily life for everyone. It's called... Situation awareness. Now, that'll explain situation awareness well. Situation awareness just means being awake to what is happening near you. Not just in front of you, but all around you. It's also a lot more than just seeing what happens. It means processing what you see, what you hear, or maybe even what you smell, so that you can figure out what you need to do both right now and in the near future. So situation awareness is very important in places where there's a lot going on and where poor decisions might lead to serious consequences. And some examples of this would be piloting an aeroplane, a soldier in combat, uh, someone who treats critically ill or injured patients. And in the case of a preacher, it's knowing who is awake and who is asleep. Oh, nobody's sleeping yet, that's good. 
The thief that we are examining today, the persistent and habitual one, lacks in a spiritual sense the precious situation awareness that comes from being saved. One of the personal awakenings that always comes from genuine salvation is knowing where we fit in and where we work out. It's big picture living, not self-picture. It confronts all of those dimensional aspects that I've just spoken about. A person who is saved won't be limited to their own little space of being, what they feel they need and they want. They're going to be looking around themselves all the time. And when I say looking, I don't just mean with their eyes, but also with their hearts and minds. They will be looking up because they are aware of what Jesus has done for them, giving him thanks and praise for that gift. Since if they merely look down, they can see the fires of hell that used to awake them. And they will also be looking around themselves because they know, as Paul has very recently described, that they are part of a body of believers with a special and individual part to play in it. If tempted to steal, they will be asking themselves, how can I possibly be stealing from my brother or sister when I know how it hurts them and how it hurts God and how ultimately I'm really just stealing from myself? If they did steal, they would be pricked by their consciences to confess and make amends. But the unsaved person knows little of these things. They are concerned with them and themselves. What happens to others beyond those who are very close to them really doesn't matter. They do not know and they do not care what God is really like. Thus the cure is extraordinarily obvious, isn't it? Show them Christ. Lead them to Christ. We could, of course, try to convince them on the basis of the bunch of rules that society has that tells us what is good or bad. But the problem is that people who have given themselves over to stealing are not going to be convinced by some worldly standard that just presses on them from outside, that is imposed, because they need transforming from inside. The kind of profound change that can only be made by God. Their understanding, it needs to be opened up so that they finally understand who God is and who they are in Christ. The next reason for stealing I want to talk about is one that affects both saved and unsaved people and it comes from a messed up sense of what's really important in life. You know, all of us here broadly have the same possibilities. We all have 24 hours in a day. We have mostly the same abilities, two hands, two feet and so on. And we all have the choice of what to do with those things, where we will be spending them. But unfortunately it's too easy to get distracted and to plow everything that we have into the wrong places. Perhaps we've started to work in the corporate world and it's taken us over so that everything becomes about the brand or the customer. We work long hours and maybe we're not above doing some dubious things to get a sale or to protect an account. Perhaps the problem's different. We feel a deep need to surround ourselves with stuff, the best stuff, the most stuff. 
And we don't really care about how we get it or where it comes from, but we plough all of our energies into that, even to the extent of stealing. We rationalise that it's okay to take things from other people because it's in the interest of whatever we hold up as important. Friends, that is a thing called idolatry and it ought to frighten us. If we look at the Old Testament, one of the things that will emerge from there is that idolatry is a disobedience that makes God extraordinarily angry. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things and he is the one who controls all things. To put anything else at all into one of those spaces is a very personal insult and one we would want to avoid when we understand the enormous grace and love that has brought us the right to come into his presence and call him Father, to speak directly to him. Theft is bad enough, but it should never be allowed to degenerate into idolatry. Now, this wrong standards kind of theft has two parts to it. First of all, there is a physical element. Sometimes we steal actual things, stuff we can hold and justify the theft because it is for some greater good. But there is also an intangible version. Because we have our priorities all wrong, we might use things that we cannot hold, such as our time and our mind for purposes that don't rightly deserve them. And both of these are a very serious kind of theft when the effect is that we are stealing reputation from God. We make created things our ruler and not him. And this is something we should be scrupulous to avoid, not because we are afraid that a bolt of lightning is going to strike us down if we don't, but because God unreservedly deserves his sovereignty. And as I've already said, because he first loved us. The cure for such theft is a sound knowledge of what scripture tells us is important. Now, one could very reasonably pick up a Bible, which is a very thick book, with lots of tiny writing in it, and go, (coughs) where do I start? How might I ever remember everything, you might ask? Yes, there are many, many helpful illustrations and instructions. But actually, in the end, it all comes down to something very simple. There's two in Matthew 22, and I've mentioned them a lot. Can anybody tell me what they are? Two greatest commands. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Friends, it's easy as pie. You should remember these things. That's all you have to remember because if you want to know what to do in any circumstance, 
All you have to do is think of those. If I'm going to do something, is it consistent with the total love of God? Or will my actions be in the best interest of the fellow next to me? Because if you can answer yes to those, then you know it's the right thing to do. But if not, well, you better be thinking about your priorities because you probably don't have God front and center. Now, I believe I've shared with you before that I, at times, like probably you do, succumb to flights of fancy over what I would do if I won Big Wednesday. It's a very entertaining fantasy for a while, but a great danger lies in its attraction. I'm, no, I'm not saying that you're automatically going to go to hell if you buy a lotto ticket, but because it suggests that the answer to all our supply problems lies in an earthly solution. That's its problem. So, let me read you this passage from James 1. Verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good gift, every perfect gift, comes from Lotto headquarters in Auckland. No, it comes from our Heavenly Father. That term, Father of lights, reminds us that He created the majestic sweep of the heavens, and that with such power... How could he ever lack the ability to supply everything that we need, from the very smallest pin to the very largest thing that we may ever need? But a thief has forgotten this truth. A thief believes that the answer to any shortage or urge lies in their own two hands and someone else's cupboard. God is not in the supply chain. This is a tough truth, friends. The real cure for any shortage lies in faith and prayer and often in a great deal of perseverance. Where we lack, we must never succumb to the temptation to take from others, believing that the end justifies the means. Instead, we must take our needs to our Heavenly Father, trusting that out of His wisdom and His bounty He will supply as He has promised. And of course, that doesn't always mean getting what we would like or when we would like it. The hard truth is that disobedience may well mean suffering and hardship. And I'd love to be able to tell you why that happens in a cut and dried way. But I cannot. No human can explain God's motives and timing because not a single one of us has the ability to seize the fullness. I can't even think of a word to describe how big God is. We just can't get that. And yet we say, how can this terrible thing happen? Why doesn't he answer now? But no one knows the exact reason. I don't think that there is a single one of us here who would not love to excuse a man who stole a, bread, a piece of bread for the genuine need of his family. And yet, 
before a holy God, that theft remains, theft, it remains sin, and it represents disobedience. And this might be something that is very hard to accept, something that we don't want to think about, because to do so means to confront that exquisitely high standard of perfection that rests in a holy God. In the face of such a force, where is my hope? For I am certainly lost if I rely on my own strength. My hope lies in Jesus. Now as you listen to this, you might think that God is an irrelevance and that an empty cupboard or an old car is your biggest problem. But I want you to know that most certainly it is not. Because one day, you're never going to get away from this, you are going to die. And at that moment, your cupboard and your car will be as meaningless as one tiny grain of sand in a whole universe of beach. In the next instant, you're going to be standing before a holy God whose standard is utterly inflexible and you will be called to give account for the things that you've done in your life against that standard. And from that place of judgment there are only two ways onward. Either to eternal punishments in hell or onwards to glory with God. And he will not be even slightly interested in how many times you have donated to World Vision. Because he's going to want to know two things. Did you listen to his voice? And did you keep his commands? Not some of the time, but all of the time. The trouble is that no human can keep these things perfectly, and perfection is the only acceptable standard. And we will try to excuse the inexcusable. But my children were starving, Lord. Well, sorry, but that just won't cut it. The only thing that we can ever say is this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friends, in the same way that we can only trust God and only God to preserve us in our everyday physical needs, we can only trust in His Son Jesus to preserve us after we die. Because only those who trust in Jesus as Lord will have as an answer the sacrifice of his blood on the cross for those two questions from the Father. Lord, I am a sinner, but I cling to the blood of Christ. So, what will it be for you today if you do not know Jesus as your Lord? Christ and life or death and hell. I do very fervently pray 
that it will be the first. That if you do not know him, you will make the right decision. The final motivation for theft I want to address is just common or garden laziness. We want the quick fix with minimum effort, so we just steal things from others by taking their iPhone or hacking their bank account rather than working for these things. But the shortcut is not what God has ordained for us. As Adam and Eve stood confronted by him in the Garden of Eden, part of his punishment for disobedience was, of course, to curse the ground. And I don't believe, I don't want to read into that, that work itself was a new idea or a consequence of this curse, because earlier in Genesis we can read that part of Adam and Eve's original responsibilities in the garden was the tending and keeping of it. So, after the apple, labor wasn't new, but the sweat and toil of it was. And to believe that we could evade that curse in some way is a threefold denial of God's right to make it, his ability to enforce it, and his purpose of giving us the gift of work in the first place. Why do I say that work is a gift? Well, I have two reasons. First, because I've already mentioned it was part of the pre-fall living conditions in the Garden of Eden. And in those circumstances, I just can't imagine that was anything that one could do that wasn't a delight. Even work. Can you imagine working in a perfect garden for your Lord? It might sound odd, but you know, if you think about your own experience, you will agree that there are actually still echoes of that Eden pleasure in work even today, because we all know what it feels like when you have done a job well. It still feels good, doesn't it? And I honestly think that that's some shadow of what we used to have. And secondly, we know that work is a gift because of some of the things that we read in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, before we go any further, yes, I know it is a weird book. And although the overwhelming message that we generally read there is that in the end everything we can try is meaningless or vanity, we can also read this little nugget in chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given you under the sun. All your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. These are the good things that God has given us. Work is our portion and our lot as long as we live. It isn't optional and there aren't any genuine get-rich-quick fixes. And so we need to make our peace with that. The Lord has definitely given us work to do and although it is afflicted by a curse, it's not without its rewards. And I'm sure that Paul was well aware of this passage in Ecclesiastes and this is why he proposes work as a cure and substitute for theft. In the second part of today's verse he says, Rather let him labour working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who has need. It's interesting, isn't it, that the command that we've read in this verse doesn't just end there with, stop! 
Stay the same as you are. Just don't steal things. There's a lot more expected than just an internal hidden decision. But isn't that so consistent with the right response to salvation? Trust in Christ as Saviour has to bring on a profound inner change. And that's because we're given a new heart, as God promised in Jeremiah. But the change can't end there. Same man, different heart. The change in heart must mean a change in man as well, something that will be seen on the outside. And one of those changes should be the attitude of working for others that we've not long ago read about right here in Ephesians. I hope you can also see the wonderful picture of movement too in this verse. It moves from laziness to labour. And I'll quickly mention here that the Greek word that's used here for labour, it means really hard work. It's a genuine and it's a substantial transformation. And there's movement too from using hands for what is evil to using them for good. From seeing Everything gained is selfishly for self to that which is gained being valuable for somebody else's benefit. Isn't there a fundamental truth here? And perhaps it's this. Salvation can seem to be exclusively a very, very personal thing. But thinking that way, we will just end up as some kind of salvation thief, hugging its benefits to ourselves. But this can never have been God's motivation for giving it. Consider the deep unselfishness and love that caused the omnipotent creator God to provide for our redemption rather than our removal. And I use that word redemption deliberately because it speaks of a cost. Here a huge cost. The life and blood of Jesus, the only Son of God. In the knowledge of such overwhelming generosity, how could we ever imagine that the intention had ever been to never pass such a gift on? It was meant for all. It was made for all. So I want to end today by suggesting that the truest expression of this verse lies in each and every single one of us being situationally aware of our salvation. Never holding it down, but working with it, becoming more and more Christ-like, so that we do have an abundant supply of the very best of what is good. Eternal life in Him. Not just for ourselves, but to pass on to a world that has a deep and desperate need. Will you commit to do that work? Let us pray.